This is the College Football Fix Podcast from USA Today Sports. All right, welcome back, College Football Fix. What a freaking college football weekend we just had. We're going to go over all that. We're going to talk about next week. But, Paul, I want to start with this. Saturday, I'm watching games. I'm watching the early big game from Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I tweeted the following. And sometimes I know when a tweet is going to get a lot of response or that I'm going to get roasted or whatever. But sometimes I don't. And I thought this was a fairly innocuous tweet. I just said, while I was watching Michigan absolutely destroy Penn State, I said, I don't think it would be a stretch to vote Michigan number one. Wasn't trolling, wasn't trying to get a response. I just was watching a really good football team destroy a pretty good football team and just kind of had that thought pop into my head. And obviously, the big story was what happened in Knoxville. And we're going to talk about that. But the reason I want to start with this and the tweet I sent Saturday is because, first of all, like I still think it's true. I I'm not saying Michigan's the best team in college football or whatever. Just saying, if you want to vote Michigan number one, I think it's totally reasonable to do that. But also, as we sit here on October 18th, seven weeks into the season, I do not remember a year where the pecking order is as unclear as it is right now. And that's just an amazing thing that we don't get to experience a lot in college football. Yeah, I think there are four teams, Stan, that you could put number one. And no one would really laugh at you, right? Obviously, Georgia and Ohio State, Michigan and Tennessee. I think you could even put Tennessee at number one right now. That's very cool, right? Even if these are historic brands from the major conferences or the major conferences. But yeah, I think that's very cool. I don't know why you got a lot of blowback on Michigan. I know we're not going to talk too much about them because we do want to focus on the game of the week. But we have both said for several weeks that there was more to Michigan than meets the eye, that they were kind of playing around a bit. And, you know, against Indiana and against Maryland, not really putting their foot on the gas. They put their foot on the gas and on Penn State's throat on Saturday. And I think we need to reflect on that for a moment to realize that this team is very good, not just like good. They're really good. So I don't understand that blowback. A lot of love for Tennessee coming out of Saturday, but also Michigan. Both of those teams, I think, uh, have a really good argument for being number one, even though we obviously see this week that they're three and four in our poll. Well, no, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Because, again, we normally at this point in the season, we're just kind of rolling our eyes and it's, hey, listen, uh, Alabama or Georgia or whoever. Yeah, Ohio State's there. There's a very small number of teams that we could actually consider or think about the final Monday of the season holding the trophy. But as we sit here right now, and the way I want to approach this week's poll is how surprised would you be if the following teams end up winning the national championship? Because I want to see how many actual contenders that we think there are. And again, like we're just conditioned to come into seasons. And especially when we get to this point that, yeah, a few teams may be able to make the playoff, but who's actually going to be there 
to win a national championship? Who's going to be there capable of winning two games against other really good teams? And it's just not a very big number. But I actually think, like, when we sit here and analyze all of these teams, the number is maybe a little bigger than we think. So what is your let's number? Start, well, again, this is why I want to go down the list, all right? Okay. Georgia is number one. I think the answer is clearly yes. Number two is Ohio State. I think the answer is clearly yes. Number three, Tennessee. I think I would not bet on them to win a national championship, but I don't think it's inconceivable. No. Number four is Michigan. Again, not saying I'd bet on it, but I think it's certainly possible. Number five, Clemson. I think at this point, given the way DJ Uyunglele is playing, I think you'd have to say it's it's possible, right? I mean, are we in agreement? I'm in agreement. They're the softest of those. They're probably a little bit ahead of Tennessee, actually. But yes, I think Clemson definitely needs to be included in that group, not just because they're unbeaten, but because the way DJ is playing makes them more dangerous than they've been. And let's just face it, there's a track record that they've shown yep. that they can win in the playoffs. Number six, Alabama. Honestly, at this point, having seen what I've seen of them, I do not think they're going to win the national championship, but I'm not going to count them out. I think they're on the list. I think they're on the list of mm-hmm. teams. Yeah. So that's six. Way more, honestly, than we normally are dealing with. <laughs> Number seven, Ole Miss. I think this is where I sort of draw the line and say I don't think they're a national championship material. Now, they're 7-0. They're a good team. I think their record is a little bit skewed because the schedule has just fallen in a weird way for them. Like, it's just very backloaded. You look at Ole mm-hmm. Miss, they've got LSU on the road, A&M on the road, home against Alabama, Arkansas on the road, Mississippi State at home. They're going to lose two of those five games. Yep. So I, I just don't think that they're going to win a national championship. Number eight, TCU. At this point, I think I would be willing to say TCU is a real playoff contender, but I don't think they're going to win a national championship. That's the grouping for them and a number of teams that are about to follow. UCLA, I'd put them in, in that, that group. same group. Yep. Number nine. And, and... They're going to play number 10 right now, but number 10, Oregon, also definitely in that group. Yep. Oklahoma State. This is where it I'm gets off a little the bandwagon. To me. You're off. Off, yeah. the, off the bandwagon. Spencer Sanders came back to earth. Um, the defense has been porous for two weeks in a row. I'm off the bandwagon. I think when you get to number 10, or rather when you get to number 11, you get into a new group. And even, honestly, I put Ole yeah, Miss I, in this I group that we're about to say. But, yeah, they're, they're not in the same group. But, look, I think we've made the point that at least nine teams right now you're saying are good enough to make the playoff. And of those nine, um, six of them you're saying are good enough to win the national championship or could win the national championship. Just think back to a year ago. It was all about Alabama and Georgia at this point last year. It was, a, it was just a countdown to Alabama-Georgia. So it's refreshing, and it's a little bit different than what we've seen in the recent playoff era. So uh, it's almost, Dan, like, and not to take this in a weird detour, detour, 
we're almost getting a little bit of a snapshot maybe of what the regular season will feel like in a 12-team bracket in that you have more teams that you think can go far, more teams that you're seeing and evaluating that you think can win two or even at that point three games for a national championship. So it's a cool time in college football, and it was a great weekend to clarify things but also to, in a way, add more teams into the mix because Tennessee is now in the mix, and I don't think last week we would have put them there. All right, so let's get to it. 52-49, Tennessee wins over Alabama in Knoxville. Biggest game since 1998. Tennessee off to an incredible start early on. They were up 28-10. to They had everything rolling. I was counting on Alabama to make a pushback, and they did. Tied it up early in the third quarter. Took the lead. Had a just crazy play with about eight minutes to go where Tennessee just dropped the football on a mesh play. It looked like Hooker was going one direction or thinking one thing. The running back was thinking another thing, and the ball just ends up on the ground, gets picked up by Dallas Turner, runs in for a touchdown, 49-42 Alabama. At that point, if you're sitting in the stadium, if you're watching on television, you're thinking, all right, this is it. Alabama's got this. They're up a touchdown in the fourth quarter. They've come all the way back. This is where we've seen time and time again, teams have a shot and then they blow it. And then Alabama just runs away with it. And guess what? Uh That didn't happen this time. Tennessee punched back Jalen Hyatt, his fifth touchdown reception of the day with three twenty-six to go to tie the game. You're still thinking at this point, all right, that's enough time for Bryce Young to drive him down the field. They'll score. Alabama's going to win. The way Bryce Young played from beginning to end was phenomenal. I mean, it was one of the best performances of an incredible career he's had there. Mm-hmm. And yet, and yet, when Alabama gets in position to win the game, the greatest college football coach of all time <laughs> just screws it up. And I just cannot believe this is not the biggest story in college football. And I understand Tennessee, they've been bad for so long. They've been down. They've been dysfunctional. It's been a mess. And they deserve all the credit for winning the game because we've seen dozens of teams come close to Alabama and not be able to finish the job. And they did. But. But, my God, Nick Saban, you have first and 10 with 30 seconds to go at the Tennessee 30-yard line. There is 0% chance you should lose that game in regulation if you handle the situation right. 0% chance. And they just screwed it up. Tennessee goes down, gets the ball back after a 50-yard missed field goal from Will Reichard. And... Couple plays, they got a couple timeouts left. Tennessee gets in position for a 40 yard field goal, kind of knuckles over the crossbar barely. And then you get thousands of people on the field, and now Tennessee's the toast of the town. I just cannot believe that Alabama, in that situation, threw the ball three straight times and left enough on the clock, both in terms of seconds and timeouts, for Tennessee to be able to win that game of regulation. I still cannot believe it. Cannot happen. And yet Saban allowed it to happen. Let's hold off on the penalty discussion. 
But mm-hmm. just the end of game, my God, what are you doing? Mario Cristobal does that, to name one guy. Yeah. We're ta- we are talking about that. And we're saying, here we go again. Late game mismanagement. Poor Mario. But he is the go-to scapegoat for this conversation. Rightfully so, out of that game, we're talking about Tennessee. Tennessee won that game. But I do think as much as the penalties, as much as the fact that they can't make a field goal again, that really <laughs> stuck with me. It really stuck with me that yeah. moment late. It, it's it's really pretty incredible. And it hasn't it hasn't really happened much. I never blamed Saban for the kick six. I never did. I, I No, that was you a know fluke. What I mean? That was a one Such in a, a million. Fluke. That was a one in a million. It was a stupid choice, but it was such a fluke. I never blamed him for that. This is this is that last minute is on him. He manages the clock, and, and he he allowed Tennessee the opportunity to win the game as much as he, as much as Alabama lost it. He gave Tennessee the chance to win it. We would be talking about this more if it was someone other than Saban. Absolutely, and it's weird that we're not. It's weird that more people look, aren't I talking understand. about how bad that game was. I understand. Second down, they tried to throw into the flat to Jameer Gibbs, and he dropped the ball. I get that. He should have made the catch. If he executes the play, it might be seven and might be having a totally different conversation today. But that didn't happen. And you have to just think back to the entire approach. If you're in that situation and you know that Tennessee's offense can – strike you in a matter of seconds. We saw it the entire game, right? Long play after long touchdown play. Jalen Hyatt was unguardable in this game. Alabama's secondary really struggled. Obviously, the penalty thing was a big theme. Uh, so you're if you're Saban, if you're Bill O'Brien, like you're thinking, if we give the ball back to them at the 35-yard line, like one pass interference penalty and one play – puts them in position to win the game. Like Mm -hmm. all these things have to be going through your mind. So if you're Alabama there, I'm thinking, all right, make sure whatever happens, there's no time left on the clock. If we have to set up for a game winning field goal, that that ball is going through the uprights with zero on the clock or maybe, you know, five seconds. You got to make Tennessee use their timeouts you're 50, it's a 50-yard field goal. Maybe try to get like seven yards <laughs> to make it a 43-yard field goal, which for Will Reichert, I know that they have maybe lost a little confidence in him or he's lost confidence, but it's still like football 101. <laughs> this is your I feel like, priority here. Yeah. You know, if you're willing, if you're willing to accept a 45-ish yard field goal to win. Like that's what you're willing to do, and you're already at the thirty. In my mind, you've got to. The clock is the most important thing. The yeah. Clock and the final ball placement at whatever hash, whatever. That's the most important thing. It kind of leads me to a thought, Dan, that I've had the last three days, and it's just a question of what does it mean to beat Alabama now? Like, what does it mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, in the past, losses to Bo Wallace and Ole Miss, losses to Cam Newton, losses in the kick sick, losses to LSU in 2011 or 2019, those felt very transient to me. Like they were a snapshot in time. Like if Alabama had 
the game had started a second earlier or a second later, the result would have been different. They were a moment in time, just a snapshot. We are talking a bit about how Alabama allowed Tennessee to win that game. This loss feels a little bit different to me, and not just because they should have lost to Texas or they could have lost to A&M. It feels different because you add together the most penalized team in the country, a team that has played very, very poorly on the road going back more than a year, um, a team that does not do well on special teams, a team that's basically two-headed on offense, a team that can't defend the pass. What does it mean now? A team, honestly, it wasn't just that they were out-coached late. I think you can make the case that they were out-schemed. They were out-schemed. They were out-coached before the game itself began. It's worth asking what it means now to beat Alabama. It doesn't feel as special to me today as it as it does in the past, or as it as it did in the past. What do you what do you think about that? And what do you think the answer to that question is? Well, it clearly feels special to Tennessee because they had not done. I'm not it taking it away. This <laughs> right. not taken away from Tennessee. Tennessee won that game. They won it. Alabama didn't lose it, and UT deserves to be where they are in the poll. Still, it feels a little bit weaker. Like an Alabama win feels less like. That's March on whatever than it was in the past. It feels a little bit less special. Here's the thing. This Alabama team without Bryce Young is very ordinary. They're good, but we just saw them a week earlier struggle at home to beat Texas A&M. Barely held on by their fingernail, by their cuticle to win that game. And they still get the best players among the best players. But there is something going on. And I don't know exactly what it is. By the way, Nick Saban is 70 years old. (laughs) He's an old guy, right? Yep. And he's done this for a long time. And I'm not going to question the greatness of Nick Saban. But everybody does lose their edge at some point. He's an old guy. Their program feels a little stagnant right now. Maybe there is still a way for him to shift direction or find something new that maybe inspires them to, I don't know, kind of just shift gears the way they did several years ago when they kind of embraced the wide open spread offense. But right now, if if Bryce Young doesn't play an unbelievable game. Tennessee wins that by three or four touchdowns (laughs) and Tennessee does not have better players than Alabama. Right. I mean, can we agree on that? No, they do not have better players except no, they don't have better players. They don't have better players. They have have better wide receivers. They they have better wide receivers. Not the same roster. And the penalty thing, like this has never been a program that, has been sloppy when they win. This is a program where not only are they just better than you talent wise, but they make fewer mistakes than you. And that's why they win games by three touchdowns. They're just so Mm -hmm. well prepared and they don't make these kind of mental mistakes, but games where they're 15, 16, 17 penalties, it's not Alabama football. So, I think we have to sort of now shift and say, where do they go from here? They're obviously six and one and they're not out of it, but let's just be realistic. They should have lost the game to Texas. 
They certainly could have or should have lost to Texas A&M. They were in some trouble at Arkansas before it flipped on them in the fourth quarter. Uh, They are going to play Mississippi State this week at home. They got to go to LSU. They have to go to Ole Miss. And they get Auburn at home. There may be another loss in there. Maybe. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. From what we we've to, seen, hey, you have, have to, to bet. Allow for that possibility. You got to bet thousand dollars. You pick an Alabama loss. You pick an Alabama ten and two, or eleven and one for one thousand dollars. I might go ten and two. I mean, that game against Ole Miss on the road is going to be a beehive. Yeah, I agree. Ten and two. Oh my goodness. Um, I was struck. We're talking about Nick Saban being 70. A couple weeks ago, A&M was also CBS, I believe. Gary Danielson, I didn't talk about this last week. Gary Danielson was like kind of making some comments. Nick Saban had to run to get a timeout. And Danielson was like talking about his gait, like talking about his like energy level, his ability to run 15 yards. He's like, well, he he doesn't do that very much anymore. He won't be doing that very much longer. Um, Just kind of jogged my memory. He is 70. He has reinvented this program multiple times over. I just don't know what the next frontier is. Like there's nothing happening. There's no equivalent to a 2015 let's go no huddle update to Alabama right now in 2022. I don't know what that next frontier is. I don't know. I don't know what's going to grip college football next. All I know is that Alabama stinks on defense and they're basically Gibbs, Young, and a bunch of nobodies on offense. That's Alabama right now. And that's not a college football national championship winning formula. So that let's keep an eye on that. That offensive line is – line's not great. Not very good. They don't look like a national champion. We know they can be, but there are a lot of warning signs, and these warning signs have been there all season. We're just focusing on them a lot more. If they had won 52-49, I hope that we'd still talk about them, but – we need to focus on the fact that Alabama is not this robotic juggernaut like they've been so many times in the past. Having said that, if they end up in Atlanta with another shot at Tennessee on December 4th or 3rd, I would pick Alabama, wouldn't you? Yeah. I wouldn't so, pick them to beat Georgia, but I would pick them to beat Tennessee in a rematch. We make we contradict ourselves all the time, but we're allowed to do <laughs> well, that. Well, that's the we're sport. Allowed. That's that's, that's the, the sport. sport of college football, and it's a lot of it is matchups. Let's yep. face it. And I do think seeing Tennessee for a second time, not just for Alabama, but for probably just about any team, would be a different experience. And also not in Knoxville, where it was the biggest game in 25 years. Um, or not? Does it say 15? 15. No, you got it right. It's been Jesus. 24 years. 24. Jesus Christ. 10 years ago was 2017. 20 years ago was 2014. 1998 was 17 generations ago, I believe. (laughs) We we always screw up when we try to do math on this podcast. (laughs) 2014 was was eight years ago. 1998 was was almost 25 years ago. 25 years ago, yeah. All right. Um, Let's talk about Tennessee. Where do they go from here? They've got UT Martin this week, which was actually some very fortunate scheduling because this is this is the hangover zone of all hangover zones. And 
So scheduling Tennessee Martin in this spot was good. They have to come back the week after that, and I would put a pin in this home game against Kentucky because that's one where they, you could get tripped up and Tennessee uh, will face a defensive challenge in, in Kentucky that they have not faced yet this year. Um, and then they got to go to Georgia the following week. So if they want to win a national championship, if they want to win the SEC, they're going to have to win in Athens. And I don't know that they can do that. I mean, they can in a one-game scenario. I don't I don't think they will, but this is going to be interesting because they are the new hotness in college football. Everyone's now going to be on the bandwagon. And yet, let's face it, like, they've had some close calls too. By the way, they needed overtime to beat Pitt. Uh, the the uh, Alabama game could have easily gone the other way. They screwed up an onside kick against Florida that that could have gone the other way. So yeah, they're playing amazing and they're having a great year. And if you're a Tennessee fan and you want to say we're back and we're not losing, this is LSU 2019 all over again with, you know, wide open offense and a transfer quarterback and all that stuff. um, Go right ahead. But I will say the margins are really thin Tennessee's defense is not dominant by any stretch of the imagination. And if they go lost Kentucky, lost Georgia, and we forget about them by Thanksgiving, I don't think it would be the craziest thing ever. No, not at all. And Kentucky's not just a, a game to watch because it's a trap game. Uh, Kentucky's just good, period. They got Will Levis and Rodriguez back in the, in the backfield. They're, they're just good. I think Kentucky is the bigger game. Uh, let me explain. You can lose to Georgia and still win a national championship. You might even not have to beat Georgia again to win a national championship. You can be the number four seed at 11 and one and then, you know, play whoever and win a national championship. You're not going to win a national championship if you lose to Kentucky because then you got to beat Georgia and you got to beat Alabama again and then you got to win two more. So Kentucky's a huge game, huge, huge game. We'll talk about it more next week. Um, but, you know, you're right about UT Martin. You don't want to be playing Kentucky Saturday. You want to play UT Martin, and you want to have be able to have a couple of beers on Friday night, and you know, sit out in the third and fourth quarters. That's what Tennessee needs. So great timing. We'll talk about them next week. But Kentucky is the game. That's the game that I have circled right now. I know Georgia is the one that everyone will want to watch, but Georgia game uh, takes on a, a different feel. They lose to Kentucky. Are you buying the 2019 LSU vibes? I'm hearing more and more people talk about that. Not quite. Not quite. It's not quite the same team. I mean, let's just get real. But I just looked at the numbers today. Hendon Hooker is right in line with Joe Burrow. Uh, He's averaging about 30 fewer passing yards per game. His completion percentage right now is like 71. Burrow is 76. Efficiency rating is just about identical. He's averaging more yards per attempt. He is averaging one fewer touchdown per game, so that matters. But um, he's putting together a historic season that's in the Joe Burrow class. So it's similar. They're doing things that are similar on offense, but that 2019 LSU team was maybe once in a lifetime. This Tennessee team is a really great story, and they're a really great offense, but I don't I don't think we can put them in that same class yet. Let's talk again after Georgia. The thing with that LSU team that maybe people don't remember quite so clearly is – 
their defense struggled a bit early in the year, but once you got into October, November, they improved every week. And by the end of the season and getting into the playoff, that defense with Dave Aranda leading it was really, really good. And they had been able to mesh what they were doing on offense with their defense. And they were just one of the great college football teams of all time. I don't really see that with this Tennessee team from a defensive standpoint, but also they will be hard to stop for sure. Yeah, they don't have the same star power or even close to that LSU defense. That LSU defense had some big time studs, as they always do. Um, so there is they're not as balanced on both sides of the ball, but um offensively they can score on anyone. Um, and that offense is gonna carry them at the very minimum to the New Year's six. And if you had said back in August that they're going to whatever New Year's six bowl and hype bowl second year, you obviously would have taken it. Um they can do more this year, but at the very baseline, this is like a building block year for Tennessee with huge expectations. Eh, maybe not, but big-time expectations going into next season that they'll be in that 9-10-11 win range again. This was a Saturday where we had a lot of unbeaten versus unbeaten matchups. We started with Michigan. Let's just go back to them for a second. 41-17 over Penn State. It was a complete ass-kicking. 418 rushing yards for Michigan, 7.6 yards per carry against a Penn State team that had been quite good defensively. Yep. Um, Looks very different now after a performance like this. As I wrote in the Misery Index on Sunday, which uh, I know a lot of you read, check it out if you don't. To me, this was the kind of game for Penn State that just like has to deflate you so much as a fan because – You've kind of been right there with Ohio State, Michigan. You've been better than Michigan for a lot of Harbaugh's tenure. And now it just seems like it's Ohio State, Michigan again, and then a big gap. And then there you are, and you're not really getting a lot closer to to those teams right now. And let's just start with the Penn State angle. I mean, Franklin's signed to a 10-year contract. Like, he's not getting fired. But – that game is a big flashing red light for me about just where their program is going right now. Yeah, it's a really disheartening loss because you gave up 399 rushing yards on the year going in, and then you give up 416 in one game. Uh, that's the kind of loss that um, you might as well just get that tattooed on your face because every time you look in the mirror, you're going to remember the time that Michigan made you look like a bunch of six-year-olds. And they did. Michigan made them look like kids, just like little baby boys playing baby boy football outside with their their older brothers and uncles. Um, So that's really disheartening, not flattering, not flattering for the program and for Franklin. They could still go nine and three and have a nice year. The question is, what does Penn State want to be? And is nine and three, ten and two on the regular good enough? It better be because they're going to get absolutely destroyed by Ohio State and probably will be lucky to finish 10-2. and And they'll be a very, very, very distant third in the East in that case. The thing that stands out to me most about Michigan right now is just they know what their identity is. They are leaning all the way into it. Look, I think we all can question whether winning the line of scrimmage, physically dominating people, running the ball, moving defenders will work 
in the college football playoff because last year they ran up against Georgia and it certainly did not look the same as it did when they played Ohio State. And that's certainly something that they're going to have to prove if they get back in that position for people to buy in. But I will say this. They look different to me in terms of how they're doing it, how they're moving people at the line of scrimmage. They are physically dominant and even maybe more so than they were last year at the point of attack. Uh, They've had to remake their offensive line. They brought in some transfers. It's a little bit of development. Last year, they were kind of a team. Yeah, they were good running the ball. They were good on their offensive line, but they really sort of made their bones on the defensive side of the ball with those defensive ends, rushing the passer, creating chaos. I think they're more dynamic this year offensively with McCarthy. He can throw the ball if he needs to, but what they're doing up front, I mean, I am just, I cannot be more impressed. And I don't know if it will work against Ohio State. I don't know if it will work if they play Georgia again or Tennessee or whatever. But I do think that the way they play is very sustainable and it doesn't necessarily lend itself to a lot of variance about, you know, weather or even opponent. Like, I just think Mm -hmm. they're going to do what they do. Absolutely. They play with swagger. Um, And when they play Georgia or Alabama or Tennessee or Ohio State, they're going to play their game. They are not going to change who they are, regardless of who they face. That might be frustrating if they they face Georgia and whatever, and they lose 27-17 again or 27-13. You might be frustrated by it. But Michigan is who they are. And what they are doing is playing, finally, the style of football that I think Jim Harbaugh always wanted to install back at his alma mater. And that basically is a style of football that with way more bells and whistles and way more complex terminology and way more just stuff going on is basically 1986 or 1987 Michigan football. Um, so there's a high degree of nostalgia. They should be watched in low definition only on an 18-inch TV. Um, but the way they go about it, they're not getting a lot of attention, but I hope that if people watch them, the way they go about it would be very comforting. It would be a very nice mug of hot mold cider on a fall afternoon. So I love the way they play, and I do think that they can beat Ohio State. And shoot, if they play on Saturday, I might even pick them to beat Ohio State because they seem borderline unstoppable. Um, in terms of how they approach both sides of the ball, particularly along the line of scrimmage. Yeah, they're finally now the program that I always thought they would be under Jim Harbaugh. And it's not being done with a bunch of five-star recruits. Uh, In fact, surprisingly, their recruiting rankings are not that impressive. But they're obviously doing a great job of development. And this is still a game, yes, recruiting matters, stars matter, all that stuff. But you do have to develop guys. It's a lot of players that you need to win a national championship or to get to a college football playoff. And not all of them are going to be five stars. And they're just, they seem to be doing a heck of a job. So I I like what what I've seen from them. I think they're right in the mix for this whole thing. If you want them, put them number one, go right ahead. The other Battle of Unbeatens Saturday was a heck of a game that frankly didn't get as much attention as it should have because it was happening right at the same time as Alabama, Tennessee. And that was TCU coming from behind, storming back from a 30 to 16 
fourth quarter deficit to send the game to overtime and then win it on a touchdown in double overtime, 43-40. to 40. Max Duggan played really well, and the Sunday Dykes offense has given that program a huge jolt of life at 6-0. and I thought Oklahoma State was the best team in the Big 12. They – they still might be like you yeah. could end up with those two teams playing again in the Big Twelve Championship, and I wouldn't be surprised if Oklahoma State wins. But when I look at just kind of the whole picture here, I really like where TCU's positioned right now. I think it's hard to go unbeaten in the Big Twelve because you're not getting a lot of breathers, you're not getting a lot of gimmies. But they get Kansas State at home this week. I think it's very crucial for them to have that game at home instead of in Manhattan. Um, they get Texas Tech at home, and they avoid what is always a tricky road deal in uh, Lubbock. the The big road game that they're going to have is is Texas, and I think right now, I think I think I'd go with I think I'd go with TCU, even in Austin. Hmm. I just okay. I I don't know which game they're going to lose. I mean, maybe they will lose a game. Maybe it's at Baylor, but they are going to score on everybody. They're going to. I don't see anyone slowing down this offense in the Big 12. No. I think Kansas State, and we'll talk about this game, is going to have a real good shot at stopping them. I think they have the best shot <clears throat> defensively at stopping them, both because of their defense and the way they run on offense. Um, I'm not quite a huge believer in this team, TCU. I think they're very good. They're playing Sonny about Dykes, their heads? Yeah, a little bit. Sonny Dykes is such a great football coach. I don't know. like If you're an Iowa fan watching TCU – I, I hate to bring Iowa into this conversation. Yeah, like, please don't. <laughs> Sonny Dykes just like showed up. He like moved, got into the Mayflower van, drove 20 minutes to his new place. I think he lives in the same house, but he drove 20 minutes to his new job, like brought his little six page binder of offensive plays. And they're all of a sudden the best offenses in the country. How frustrating is that? If you're a team that can't do Jack on offense, I personally think there's going to be no big 12 team with fewer than two losses come the first Saturday of December, or the first Sunday of December. Um, I think TCU loses Saturday, and they lose at least one more time. But um, what they did against Oklahoma State, uh, I, I think we need to focus on the fact that TCU is just a really, really great story. One of really two really great stories in the Big 12 along with Kansas. Or three, and if we want to talk about Texas bouncing back to be a real contender, that might be a third nice story in the Big 12. You remember when Sonny Dykes was the head coach at Cal? That was weird. I remember visiting him at Cal a few times. Uh, that was a weird situation. That oh, was just pretty weird. weird. Yeah, that was weird. He was not a great. It was almost like he just wanted to. He like just had a bucket list. He like had to go to to Northern California for some reason. I remember going there and him telling me and Tony Franklin telling me about all the interesting people they would pass on their way to work. Guys talking about the end of the world and stuff. That's pretty <laughs> much my only recollection of him being at Cal. But also just some of the football stuff and the administrative stuff. Like, if Sonny Dykes ever wrote a tell-all book about his time mm -hmm. at Cal, there would be things in that book that would just blow people's mind. Yeah. If he could relay, if he could speak publicly about some of those conversations with the administrators about who and who could not get access to their football program as a recruit, I think that alone could fill a couple chapters. There were, And there was something about the band at one of the uh, during one of the games. Oh. I, Here's what the story. The, you want this? Story? Yes, yes. Here's the story. Because I, I vaguely remember, but I don't know the details. If you got the details, here's, go. Here's the story. 
one day, it's a Tuesday, whatever, in the middle of the season, Sonny Dykes and Cal, uh, they practice on their on their stadium field, go out to practice and find that the band is out on the field. Uh, and Sonny is asking, we need to practice. Uh, and they were told that the band had scheduled that time in the practice field and had changed their schedule so the football team could not use the field at that time. So they had to go to like the parking lot or they had to go practice outside that observatory above the hill. Um, That doesn't happen very many places. Cal is the one place I think where the band might get precedence over the, uh, over the the football team. Pretty, pretty embarrassing. Yeah. And that's just one of many stories that just, it's a strange time, but he has uh, resurrected his career pretty remarkably. Uh, Let's touch on Clemson. They go down to Florida state. The final score was 34, 28. So it maybe. Sounds a little closer than it was. Uh, Florida State got a couple touchdowns in the fourth quarter that made it closer than it should have been. And really, it was actually shaping up to be a pretty good game. Uh, it was 14-all in the second quarter. It was 17-14 with a couple minutes left before halftime. Florida State has the ball, and then Jordan Travis just commits just a mindless turnover, and Clemson sneaks in a touchdown before the end of the half and and they got the ball first coming out of the third quarter so all of a sudden it goes from it goes from like 17 14 to 31 14 in a flash and that was that um florida state is trying to make progress uh and maybe it'll look that way because it was a one score game in the in the books but clemson's rolling on they are seven and oh they are facing a game this week against Syracuse that probably is their toughest left. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, I, I, I will say, I mean, I, I was a doubter early on. They are winning me back over a little bit. I still think that if they get into a playoff situation, there is a talent ceiling that they have that will maybe get exposed a little bit, but they're right on track right now. Yeah, they've got like a 99.6% chance of going unbeaten. I know that's not official, but it feels that way to me. My question would be uh, not the talent quotient, but the experience quotient. What do you learn from the next six games as Clemson when half of them are Louisville, Miami, and South Carolina? That's going to prep you for Georgia or prep you for Ohio State. I think that's a really valid question. So uh, Syracuse is not prep for that kind of performance, but it is the biggest game of the weekend in the ACC and probably the biggest game of the regular season left in the ACC, considering North Carolina is probably going to end up winning that Coastal with a game to spare. Hey, Dino Babers, I would have had on my list as a guy who was about to get fired before the season, and all of a sudden you look up and here they are at 6-0. Now, they beat NC State 24-9, which I don't know what you can gain from that because NC State without Devin Leary is – they're just kind of whatever. Uh, but the thing about Syracuse is their defense is good. Their yeah. defense is, is legit. Like, And they have not played great teams, but there's a lot of, you know, nine against NC State, 20 against Virginia, um, held Louisville to seven. They're – Pretty good defensively, and as we've mentioned before, like Garrett Schrader's basically been in college so long he should be a doctor at this point, <laughs> and that's a big advantage when you've got a quarterback with that much experience. And and he's always been a good runner. Um, they're just 
it's it's nice. Like Syracuse is a tough job. It's a tough situation. Uh, interestingly enough, Clemson's kind of one the one team that they've kind of had their number a little bit. Like they've beaten them and they've come close to beating them several times under mm-hmm. Baber. So that that kind of adds a little bit of intrigue to to this whole story. But I mean, could Syracuse be a New Year's Six team? That's who would have ever thought that? Yeah, I mean, it's almost. Oh, it's not guaranteed, but it's it's a strong no. possibility, even with a loss. The, the issue with Syracuse, they're a little bit hit or miss in the running game with Sean Tucker, who's been a little bit uneven. If they could get him going against Clemson with that defense, it would give them a real shot at it. I just I don't have a whole lot of confidence. One thing I'll say in Baber's support, um, yeah, he was in a lot of under fire a lot, but he's reinvented this program and, and himself and this offense. You know, he's made do. He's like a guy who got marooned on a on an island like a castaway and made do with a volleyball and a palm tree like he's no longer this you know air raid physical eastern illinois offense it's it's much more not mundane but a little bit more traditional and and clearly they rely on defense so good success story they're going to end up like number 24 in the poll and go nine and four but nice season for them it's a good bounce back and obviously secured his job for another year or two at least Kentucky beat Mississippi State 27-17. Good win for them. In a late game, Pac-12 after dark, USC suffers their first defeat, 43-42 at Utah. A game that came down to Kyle Whittingham, I think surprisingly going for two uh, with 48 seconds left because you just typically don't see at home. Utah's a good team. You know, they've had Mm -hmm. kind of a tough – season in some ways. Um, I think if I'm Kyle Whittingham, I would have liked my chances in overtime or at least thought it's a coin flip. Uh, but he decided to, to go for the two point conversion. They got it. Caleb Williams, who was unbelievable, still had 48 seconds to go. Ultimately USC stalls out and is not able to get in position to even try a field goal. Look, USC, it was a nice start. It was a good I – th- I think they've done good work to get to this point. They've moved the program forward by leaps and bounds. But at the end of the day, their defense is just not good enough. Um, I think we may need to start asking some questions about Alex Grinch because, like, is he just a reputation guy at this point? Because when he was at Ohio State, the defense was not very good. When he was at Oklahoma, the defense was not very good. It's not very good at USC. Is he living off like way back Washington State stuff? Like I, I don't know why. Like he's the guy that Lincoln Riley thinks is the only person who can run a competent defense. I this point might be persuaded to try something else. Uh, there's personnel issues as well. I'm not writing USC out of winning the Pac-12 or maybe making the playoff outside chance, but I just don't think it's sustainable to be Oklahoma West if if you want to win a national championship. Oh yeah, absolutely, and you know they, the clock is ticking on them entering into a league with a different style of play and a different focus. So they need to become just more consistent on both sides of the ball. You know, and I think this defense more than offense because they're so good schematically offensively. The defense is revealing what we knew about them going into the year. This is not a deep team, 
It's not loaded with the with the numbers that you need defensively to rotate and stay fresh against a Utah and stay steady in the fourth quarter when you need to get key stops. I think that's why Whittingham's decision was such a smart one in the moment. Yeah. Emotional, yeah, but like you had him on your heels, like go for it. Um, had him on their heels. So yeah, I think USC is very flawed, more flawed than the record would suggest. But I they, they could get to ten and two and get into a New Year's six. Um, I really do think that, um, and that would be only because Caleb Williams, as he did on Saturday, is going to will them to a number of wins. He had his best game of the year, his best game at SC. I mean, I don't think there's any question about it. He was, he had been uneven for a while and. If he can build on that and maintain it, he's a Heisman finalist, and SC is probably going to play for a Pac-12 title if he can keep up that level of play. Yeah, and really nice performance by Cam Rising, and they've had a couple tough losses this year. He's had some late turnovers uh, that that cost them at Florida, and so big big deal for him to to get that win. That was an awesome scene. Um, just quickly on Notre Dame. Since, you know, I think we need to kind of mention them losing to Stanford at home. They're three and three. This is getting pretty depressing for Marcus Freeman, who I really would like to see do well. But we're now in the territory of I'm not saying they should fire him. I mean, they just got yesterday a commitment from, you know, five star. I think it was a receiver, right? Or, or running back. Running sorry. back. Yeah. Running back. I mean, they're he's going to get talent there but it's very obvious now there's some learning on the job that's going to go on with him and I just wonder if Notre Dame's going to run out of patience if we get to next year it's seven and five this year and we get to next year they open in Ireland with Navy and they've got Tennessee State and they've got Central Michigan so they're going to be they're probably going to be three and oh um but then they got Ohio State coming to Notre Dame Stadium and then after that, they got USC. So you know, if they're three and two, it could get pretty. It could get pretty uncomfortable. You lost to Marshall and Stanford in the same season. Yeah, like almost in home. a month. And they're I, both I bad teams. Yeah, and I, I, that's it's not unforgivable, but I'm not going to be able to forget that anytime soon. I think a lot of Notre Dame people are going to have a hard time putting that into the past. You just said seven and five. That's probably what they're going to end up being. Yeah, but it's impossible to predict. Like. You lost to Marshall. You lost to Stanford. Stanford doesn't want to win. I've watched them play. I, I truly believe that Stanford is not in it to win football games. They just want to play. They just want to have the experience. Nothing about them says that I want to win this game. I'm not playing to win this game. To lose to both of those teams means that they could lose to anyone, anytime, anywhere. They could lose to uh, the Navy prep school if they played tomorrow. Who knows? Um, so 7-5 feels safe. But I think from what I've seen, every game is losable for Notre Dame. That's bad. It's That's just not, not good. It's just not good. It's not good. And look, like you said about Freeman, like I think a lot of people are rooting for him because of the symbolism of a black head coach at Notre Dame, a young guy who can be a fixture there and just like define Notre Dame, define maybe football if he's really successful. But he needs to get in gear, not for this year or for what happened this winter. But like you said, you go into next year and the feeling around the program is really different at seven and six or six and seven. And then all it takes is like two bad weeks in a row. And maybe you're in a hole that you can't get out of. So let's just watch Notre Dame in the second half. I I don't think things can get worse, but they could be just as bad. 
I want to shout out to one team that made their way into the AFC coaches poll this week. That is Tulane. Tulane. Number 25. They are one spot ahead of LSU, <laughs> who is number 26. Who would have ever thought in October of 2022 that Tulane would be ranked and LSU would not. Uh, but here we are. I um, had corresponded a little bit uh, over the past uh, week with uh, the athletic director of Tulane, uh, Troy Dannon, and I know they're very happy. They're very proud. It's a very, very big deal uh, because it has been quite a heavy lift to get that program on solid ground. And they had a couple okay years under Willie Fritz, and then you know the COVID thing was brutal, and mm-hmm. last year was not good. They, I, I think everything that could have gone wrong for them last year did go wrong, including the fact that they were displaced by a hurricane for for like two weeks, you know, and and it would just spiraled from there. Uh, but awesome, awesome to see them. And I would say right now they have as good a shot as anybody at getting that New Year's Six bid. Yep, they are right at the front of the line with Cincinnati and UCF. Willie Fritz is, um, for if you're part of the college football intelligentsia, he's like an indie record label. If you know, you know. Okay? If you know, you know. Willie Fritz is legit. He's legitimately very great football coach. Um, he's, he's like Jason Chris, Isbell. Jason Isbell before Isbell blew up. Before he hit the big time. Yeah, he's like yeah. Uh, him and Chris Creighton at Eastern Michigan. If you know, you know. These guys are great football coaches. And, and I, I'm – uh, like you touched on it for just a moment. It means a lot to Tulane, right? Being number 25. Yeah. Every time I read someone on Twitter or elsewhere saying, let's do the poll after the season. I understand where you're coming from. The poll is stupid. It does judge and color decisions. But then you remember how much it means to the non-Alabama Georgia portion of the FBS to be in the top 25. Like it is so meaningful for Tulane. And as you know, talking to their AD, fundraising, uh, recruiting, feeling around the program, pride from the fan base. It's so important for these guys to get in the top 25 that um, let's not lose sight of that. So I was, I have them in my top 25. I was so psyched when I saw them land at number 25 on Sunday afternoon. And they haven't been ahead of TC, ahead of LSU since like, you know, the 30s. Huey Long was governor last time Tulane was above well, LSU in the standings. No, I mean, they did have that 90, 1998 season where they went undefeated, so... Was it 98 or 99? Somewhere in there, 97? Somewhere in there. That was uh, Rich Rod was the offensive coordinator. Sean, was Sean yeah. King? Sean King was the quarterback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, that, and was that was 19. a period where LSU LSU was not very good. So uh, it's happened before, but for it to happen now is is awesome. Yeah. Before, before we move on to the games uh, coming up this weekend, I just want to shout out some colleagues here uh, for – the annual coaching salary package that we do. Steve Berkowitz is the head of the snake on that. Just a ton of work and data extraction that goes into that project every year. Honestly, more than anybody could ever know. If you're interested in the business of college football and what coaches are making, we are the source for that at USA Today Sports because of Steve Berkowitz. Um, I know you had a role in that project as well. Everybody who did something to get that into print last week uh, deserves a huge round of applause. And I highly recommend everybody to go check it out because what it focuses on is the influence of boosters in college football in the explosion of salaries and coaching contracts. Um, I don't want to spend too much time going through the details of it, 
but I would just highly recommend everybody to go check it out because it's really good stuff. Yeah, what I like to do, Dan, is go to the database, pick a random coach, and then think, what would I do with that money? What would I do if I made Luke Fickle money at $5.7 million? It's an incredible database. You said I took part in it. I did zero of the research, zero of, re- of the reporting whatsoever. Um, I had nothing to do with it at all. <laughs> Steve Berkowitz works 23.9 hours per day this time of year to get that thing put together. An amazing achievement. And you know what? Everyone uses it because we are the only ones to do it. We have cornered the market on contractual interpretations of coaching contracts. <laughs> but there's a lot That's of cool stuff do. that goes along with it. Overpaid coaches, underpaid coaches, interesting little nuggets of these contracts. Here's a great, it's, it's here's a great nugget. Let's share one nugget. Okay. If Ohio, if Ohio University, not Ohio State, Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, wanted to fire Tim Albin, they don't. He's doing a very nice job. He's four and three. They would owe him forty-five thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> that's like, that's like a, that's a sports writer. You can you could hire a sports writer or pay Tim Albin to no longer be the head coach at Ohio University. That to me is wild. Jimbo Fisher is getting uh, the GDP of Nicaragua, and Tim Albin's getting forty-five thousand uh, dollars. You can't even. After all is said and done, you couldn't even buy a Subaru Outback with that. You'd have to buy a used or a 2020 Outback at like twenty-four dollars to $28,000. That's what Tim Albin's getting. He's going to get used Subaru Outback too if he gets fired in Ohio. Anyway, that's the only nugget I want to share because I thought that was an amazing – I thought there might have been a comma or a zero missing. No, 45 grand. Awesome stuff. Go check it out. Subscribe to USA Today Sports. It is worth it for that alone. All right, so let's move on to this weekend. Uh, Noon window, Iowa at Ohio State. I have zero interest in watching this game. I am boycotting Iowa until they can score multiple touchdowns. So it may be a while before I ever watch Iowa. Uh, Zero intent of watching the game, zero touchdowns for Iowa. Um, Okay. I think they will score two touchdowns actually, but one of them is going to occur with Ohio State up by a jillion points in the fourth quarter. So not a fun game, not one I'm paying attention to. We mentioned Syracuse at Clemson. Clemson, 13.5-point favorite. I would expect Clemson to win. I think Syracuse is a great story, but uh, to win in Clemson under these circumstances, I think it's probably just a little beyond their reach. Picking Clemson. Not like in a 40 to nothing win, but I think Clemson does what they did to Florida State. They just kind of pull away and and sit on them and weigh them down. Cincinnati is uh, in the poll. Uh, They're going to SMU. Cincinnati's a field goal favorite. Uh, Let's just hope that uh, the pony doesn't take a crap all over the field like it did last week. But I will watch just because of that. I want to see if there is a horse crap incident how they handle it because last week it was basically they they were just like trying to scoop it up with the Gatorade cups and that's not a very efficient <laughs> way to deal with horse manure. We don't have a there was no shovel anywhere yeah. nearby. Like, like you don't have uh, a leaf blower at least to push that away from the general area. Yeah, that was if you love college football it's for reasons like this, not Tennessee's offense or Georgia's defense because a pony took a poo poo on the field and caused a slight delay of game. That's why college football is fantastic. Show me, show me 
in the NFL. That's not happening in the NFL. No, if that happens in the NFL, Joe Buck bursts into flames. He bursts into flames like a phoenix and flies away. Uh, that's He is so angry at that happening that, that the world ends. The sun collapses in itself. Um, but that's college football at its at its best. Is uh, it's that <laughs> that's that's college football. All right, let's move on to the three thirty window. Ole Miss at LSU. LSU is actually a, a slight favorite. Uh, they they are getting better as Brian Kelly's teams tend to do. Um, Ole Miss is seven and zero, and I don't know how good they are. I mean, this is their record right now. They beat Troy by eighteen. They beat Central Arkansas by fifty six. They beat Georgia Tech by 42, pre-Jeff Collins firing when Georgia Tech was awful. They beat Tulsa by eight. They beat Kentucky by three in a fluky, weird game uh, where Kentucky screwed up the ending. Uh, They beat Vanderbilt on the road by 24, and then they beat Auburn by 14. They have not played a good team other than Kentucky, and uh, that game was wild. So I don't know what to make of Ole Miss at all. This feels like a spot where it could come to a bit of an end. Yeah, it feels like it's going to end. I'm taking LSU. Um, I like the way they're playing. I like the momentum. They've won five of six. I think they are a solidly top 25 team. Yeah, and Ole Miss, I just don't feel comfortable. Don't feel comfortable putting my chips in the middle of the table with this team. I think they're going to lose at least two. They might even lose three the rest of the way, honestly. But this – I test – Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I want to give Kiffin a lot of credit. Oh, yeah, yeah, please. You know, like this was, not, this was not supposed to be a top 10 team at any point whatsoever this season. And whether it's because they're 7-0 or not, deserves a lot of credit. He will be in the mix for SEC Coach of the Year if they're 10-2. and two, But they're on borrowed time in terms of being in this mix. So yeah, we'll see how they do. If they beat LSU, maybe we change our tune. I, I don't think they get out of this one on scale. Top 10 just feels a little above their altitude based on the eye test. So yeah. we'll see what happens. Uh, also at 3.30 on Fox, UCLA at Oregon. UCLA undefeated 6-0. Oregon has been much better since the smacking they took against Georgia in the opener, which, as we know, and as we said at the time, openers do not reflect reality. It certainly didn't with Oregon. They're better than that. They're at home. Are they going to beat UCLA? I think they do. And I'm a UCLA uh, uh, early believer. I had them high in my poll early in the year, and people are starting to catch up. I still think Oregon is a better team. And, yeah, they've played at a different level since Georgia that no one's really paying attention to because – you lose by 46 yep. in your opener, you kind of get to sit around and, and no one watch you. I think Oregon wins and begins to like inch up, inch, inch, inch up. And there's going to come a point in the next couple of weeks when we're like, okay, they make the playoffs. Oregon's, yeah, Oregon's road is pretty clear. So yeah, I like Oregon on this one uh, in a high scoring game. I don't think this is going to be like 22-17, no chance. Texas goes to Stillwater, Oklahoma State trying to bounce back. Obviously their backs are against the wall here if they – want to win the Big 12 or make the playoff. Um, Texas, I believe, is favored in this game. I think I like Oklahoma State here. Okay. Can't go wrong either way. Texas is hot. I'm going to stay with Texas. They're a different team with Quinn Ewers. So I'm going with Texas, Um, especially from what we've seen on defense from Oklahoma State the last two weeks. 
Wake Forest hosts Boston College. Don't think that's going to be much of a game. Wake Forest is a three-touchdown favorite. Uh, Tulane is hosting Memphis. Tulane, as we mentioned, sneaking into the poll. They're seven-point favorite. Memphis has had a bit of a hard luck season. I think uh, Ryan Silverfield is starting to feel some heat there. And um, Memphis and Tulane have had some good games. I, I think I like Tulane here. Yeah, me too. Memphis has lost close games. I wonder how they'll get up for this one. and. If Tulane goes up by two scores early, where their heart is going to be. So I like Tulane to go seven and one, I believe. Uh, Alabama is right now a 21 point favorite over Mississippi State. That feels big to me. I mean, the thing about Mississippi State, and this has been true of Mike Leach's teams from the beginning of time, they're going to lose some games that you don't think they should lose. They're going to win some games you don't think they should win. There's, a, there's always going to be a little bit of randomness to how they play. I think from a matchup standpoint, though, I'd be a little concerned about Alabama's defense. You know, Mississippi State could do some damage there. I, I don't know if you can have seen Alabama the last few weeks and with a straight face can say they're going to shut down Mississippi State. What, what have you seen? What have you seen? No evidence of that. Uh, Mississippi State's high volume. I think Alabama can like keep them in check. They're not going to average 11 yards or 12 yards per attempt like Hooker did. But I would just worry for Alabama um, getting into a shootout with a team that likes being in shootouts. You know, I think they win. I think Bryce Young in this offense is going to do a lot of damage to Mississippi State. But it's a, it's I'm not feeling like hugely confident. I'm a little bit concerned. A little bit worried about Alabama in this game. Minnesota goes to Penn State. Minnesota um, blooms come off the rose a little bit. They started hot, but uh, losses to Purdue and Illinois have basically eliminated them from winning the Big Ten West because they're just going to lose those tiebreaker scenarios to teams that um, are going to be right there with them competing for that. Illinois, I think you'd have to put in the pole position at this point uh, to, to win that division, which is incredible. I'm sure we'll talk about Brett Bielema at some point, but we don't need to do it this week because they've got to buy. Um, what do we think on this one? I, I think, man, Penn State just looked so fraudulent. I actually kind of think Minnesota might, might catch them. They could. I think Penn State bounces back. Penn State, it's going to be interesting to think like later in the year. Let's get past Ohio State into November, whether they go with a real youth movement and make a change at well, QB. I wonder if well, it would behoove the them. Yeah, I think that's going to be hard to do because, look, let's say, say they beat Minnesota and then lose to Ohio State. That would put them at 6-2, and two, mm-hmm. in which case their final games would be Indiana on the road, Maryland at home, at Rutgers, Michigan State at home. You're not going to forsake a shot to go ten and two and play in the Peach Bowl. You know what I mean? Or I guess it wouldn't be the Peach Bowl because the Peach Bowl is a semifinal. But yeah, I know what you mean. Bowl. Unless you believe that that's a run of games, Maryland. Unless they don't have Tongo Bailoa, that that one scares me a bit. Unless you think there's a run of games there that would allow you to put Alar in the game and let him go with it. I don't know. It's just worth thinking about. I believe Sean Clifford has had a nice career, but there's a limitation to what he is and what this offense is with him. So I, I wonder if they just think, hey, let's, let's start thinking about 
we're not going to win anything this year. Let's start thinking about next year. There's a benefit to that. Um, that would extend beyond just going 10 and two, I think. And then finally, Kansas State at TCU. We mentioned this before. You have already been on record. You think Kansas State is going to win. I am going to jump on the Horn Frogs bandwagon and ride it until I fall off this year. I don't blame you. TCU has scored on everybody. They probably will do the same thing to Kansas State. K-State, they do have the best defense in the conference. Um, they do not turn the ball over. They will pound you with Vaughn and Martinez on the ground. It's just it's a nice combination to handle a team like TCU. But I'd have to see TCU fail on offense before you're just like, well, obviously they're going to lose this game. They, they clearly could drop 40 points on, on, on Kansas State like they've done everyone else. One last scheduling thing before we say goodbye. Thursday night, uh, there's a game, Virginia at Georgia Tech. It's on ESPN. I don't know how many people are going to be watching because it's going to be going up against uh, NBA openers. So I don't know. But the thing is with Georgia Tech right now, they're they are improbably right there in, in the division, in the Coastal. Yeah. I don't think they're going to win it. But the reason why this game is important is because – if they can beat Virginia, you're going to start to hear a lot more buzz about whether Brent Key gets that job permanently. Brent Key has has done a nice job kind of turning it around in season. Uh, they've gotten a couple wins in the ACC. Uh, they look actually competent, like they're trying. And, you know, he's a Georgia Tech alum. He worked at Alabama under Saban. Georgia Tech last week just hired Jay Batt as their new athletic director. Jay Batt was the deputy at Alabama, so he had some crossover with Brent Key while Key was there. Uh, it would obviously be a cost-effective option for Georgia Tech, which does matter to mm-hmm. some degree. If you see Georgia Tech start to win games like this against Virginia, and I think they actually have a good chance to do it, this might be one of those situations like maybe Jake Dickert last year at Washington State where they just perform well enough under the interim to just keep going that direction. Yeah, they could do worse. I would be on board as long as they show results on the field. My issue, it's a bigger issue. Like we are seeing in college football a problem, and that is initial names with no initials yep. in them. It's a real problem. <laughs> it's it's a sign of the times. DJ, Uyunglele, no dots. J.J. McCarthy, dots. And now we're just going J? That? That's just the letter J, folks. There's no A-Y or even an E on the end. I dated a girl with an E on the end named J. Uh, it's just J. That's it. Just the letter J. That's a problem for me. Well, That's a problem. Uh, so My actually, brain doesn't I, like that. I didn't, I didn't know this. Uh, I'll give credit to uh, Jeff Schultz from The Athletic, who is the columnist in Atlanta. Has been around a long time, and and he actually wrote this uh, on Monday. The press conference was Monday. Uh, he asked Jay Bat what the deal is with his name, and actually, so his name is Jason. Uh, but when he was in elementary school, there were three Jasons in his class, and so they had to sort of like differentiate them. And like one of them was going to be Jason, and then one of them was going to be J A Y, and he just became Jay and just sort of stuck over time. So that's the story. It goes all the way back to when he was in elementary school. I have not uh, talked to Jay Bat. I'm sure I will at some point. I, I will let him know your thoughts that uh, this is unacceptable. It's a, it's a problem. It's a problem. You know, it makes you look like a 
like uh, I created you in Madden or something like that and forgot to fill in your name. That's a problem and he needs to address it. It's a question that he needs to address. He needs to take the time to address it. I'm just saying this is this is important. The one thing is uh, he's well aware that uh, people find his name intriguing, so I'm sure he will not mind. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening to the College Football Fix. We drop new episodes every Tuesday discussing the latest news and poll results from around college football. Subscribe to the College Football Fix wherever you listen to podcasts and find more of our content on usatoday.com and the USA Today Sports Plus app for Paul Meyerberg, for producer Emily. Behind the controls does a great job for us. I am Dan Wolken. We'll talk to you guys same place, same time next week. The College Football Fix Podcast. 